What's the Matter with Spirit? If there is a subtitle at all, it should be Psi and Spirit. I should define Psi, which is at the top of the board here, in the course of the talk. But what I'm trying to do in it is first to correct what I believe to be an error, that the paranormal has something to do with spirituality, and the idea that you can't be spiritual unless you are psychical and mystical and uh, see visions and dream dreams. And secondly, to suggest a way in which what we call the material may be, to be, may be related to what we define as spiritual. I'm going to use as my starting point definitions given by Dr. Michael Falborn, um, who wrote a very useful glossary of terms used in parapsychology. He records a definition by two other parapsychologists of psi as a general blanket term used either as a noun or adjective to identify paranormal processes and paranormal causation. The two main categories of psi are psi gamma, which includes paranormal cognition like precognition, uh, telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, clairaudience and that kind of thing, and extrasensory perception, and psi kappa, which means paranormal action, that's to say psychokinesis, moving physical objects by the power of thought, poltergeist manifestations and that kind of thing. The purpose of the term psi is to suggest that these two classes may simply be different aspects of a single process rather than distinct and essentially different processes. Now this is a very long definition and one that you're not to worry about particularly but his definition of spirit is a very simple one a discarnate entity and I don't think that's adequate. The term spirit as used by psychical researchers spiritualists and Christians and other religious believers can embrace far more than that and should do so. And when religious people at least talk of spirit they certainly mean more than discarnate entities. Spirit is indeed used vaguely to mean so many things that it's important for me to try to communicate to you what I mean by the term uh, however e uh, much each one of you may have definitions or concepts that disagree with mine. Not the differences or disagreements matter for I imagine that the purpose of the Pythagoreans is to hear all sorts of points of view so that they will be able to debate them. Let me then try to start from a concept which I can give you as a theologian. My training is theological so let me begin with a Christian theological concept that of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit or more accurately God Holy Spirit without the definite article. Three in one, one in three a seeming paradox which has probably given believers more headaches and strained the explanations of apologists more strenuously and repelled more inquirers than any other 
dogma of the Christian faith except possibly the relationship of the human and the divine in the person of Christ which also has given a very great deal of trouble and yet I believe that a simple analogy can throw light on this most incomprehensible of mysteries which is on a smaller scale the mystery of our own personalities the analogy that I would suggest to you is the analogy of a thinker his thinking and his thought a thinker cannot exist without thinking thoughts thinking presupposes a thinker and must result in thoughts and thought cannot be produced except by a thinker undergoing a process of thinking yet the three elements though distinct are inseparable in the Trinity God the Father and Creator is the thinker God Holy Spirit and Communicator is the process of thinking God the Son may be defined in relation to us humans there must be an infinity of other thoughts of God that are irrelevant to us in this phase of our existence and of which we can know nothing as God's thought of himself in human form it's not my job here obviously to preach a sermon on the Trinity so I won't draw out the implications of the analogy and the ways in which it solves nearly all the difficulties raised by the doctrine I can leave that for those of you who are interested to work out for yourselves now the Jewish and Christian thinkers say that God made man in his own image and we are likewise man the thinker who thinks and produces thoughts if you like to pursue the parallel man the creator who uses thinking the expression of his individual being and character to produce everything from uh, sausages and bricks to the poetry of Shakespeare the music of Bach and the ineffable visions of the mystics man the father man his spirit and man the sum of whose expressed and unexpressed personality is his begotten child I've just defined man's thinking as the expression of his individual being and character and I suggest that this is what his individual spirit is if he survives as Thalborn's discarnate entity it is this which survives and he cannot do so except in an abstract form which I would call spiritual for reasons which will arise in the course of this talk a spirit is not a ghost nor is an apparition a spirit I have never seen a ghost but I have consciously expressed two spirits and may all my life have been unconsciously influenced by spirits without my knowing it I think that this may indeed be part of the meaning of the Christian doctrine of the communion of saints let me digress from my principal train of thought just for a moment although I have never seen a ghost I have had three very vivid hypnopompic experiences now a hypnopompic experience is, 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 is uh, that experience which comes to us in the twilight zone between sleep and waking when you are asleep you may have dreams and so on which are quite clearly dreams when you are awake you face reality 
or what we call reality and you know that the things that you see, hear, etc. are actually there. In the twilight zone between waking and sleeping there are very often experiences which are called hypnopompic which are hallucinations but they are so vivid that you are convinced that they are real. Now I have had three such experiences in my life and the quality of those experiences was quite different from my two spirit experiences. I will therefore say, though of course only subjectively, that if my hypnopompic events were in any way psi-induced, as I believe one certainly was, a second probably was, and the third not, they had a different feel to them from the spirit-communicated experiences. So, referring to our title, Psi and Spirit, I would make the point that Psi and Spirit, though they sometimes overlap, as when a Psi communication has a spiritual content, they come from different realms of experience. And this view is supported by accounts in the literature of parapsychology. There was a book, for example, by a psychiatrist, Dr. Morton Schatzman, called The Story of Ruth. Ruth was an unfortunate American lady who, living in England, was troubled by an apparition of her father, who was at the time domiciled in the United States, who had sexually abused her as a teenager. The apparition was so real that she could see, hear, smell him, feel the physical effects of his sitting on her bed or bumping against her chair. Under Schatzman's guidance, Ruth learnt to control the hallucination and indeed create others, thus learning to develop what turned out to be a mental gift. And there is, incidentally, research uh, I, I have myself corresponded with the doctors in, the, in America carrying it out there is research published on fantasy prone people who are able at will to create surroundings, situations and characters for themselves which are more real than real these people are incidentally almost always psychically gifted as well and Ruth seems to have had a similar gift this was developed late in her life by these apparitions of her father which started when she was in her thirties. But when in the course of Schatzman's treatment of, of, of Ruth's case her grandmother died and her apparition appeared to Ruth, Ruth's comments on this appearance were although she looks real and not ghost-like she is definitely different from apparitions of living people. She is more aware and has more feeling. I look upon her as my real grandmother, not as a figment of my imagination. I think the sounds uh, I hear when she speaks are in my head, not outside, as they often seem to be when apparitions speak. Well, end of digression. Let me return to the idea of the trinity of man as thinker, thinking processor and producer of thoughts. Now, as you look at me speaking, you, uh, speaking to you today, you don't see me. All you see is a more or less mobile physical shell 
um, as it were standing in front of you and you see, see only the vehicle of a very small part of my personality to get to know me better you would have to talk to me about politics, religion, the arts, the sciences, cabbages and kings to know me still better you would have to see me in the context of my family my friends, my interests and activities and to know me best of all you would have to live with me for a considerable period yet after spending a lifetime of living with me you still would not plumb the depths of my personality every married couple for example knows that their partners can still, still surprise them by some thought or behavior and of course the philandering husband talking to his mistress always says my wife doesn't understand me there are in everybody, there is in everybody the existence of things of which, the, which they would never have suspected even after decades of living together the public physical I who is standing before you um, may reveal something of what might be called my spirit but will never reveal it all passing over our process of thinking for the moment what of our thoughts what will be left of them when their producers have rotted away or been incinerated of some like Wren's epitaph in St. Paul's Cathedral it may be written si monumentum requiescaris circumspicae if you want a memorial to him look around you I have noticed for example that there are buildings um, in the school with the names of presumably benefactors or great old boys or what have you on them there are their memorial some of us will leave a mark on activities associated with us others will leave some of our thoughts in the form of books which may continue to exert a little influence for a decade or two after our deaths and uh, some of course will be human geniuses who will leave masterpieces of drama, music and literature which will last forever and make their name live through the ages but though all these survivals may give some idea of the spirit of their originators to fuel the work of biographers neither can they reveal the whole of their personalities that created them nor can the most accurately interpreted of biographies expose anything more than an approximate summary of their subjects but if it were possible to record accurately every thought expressed and unexpressed every emotion every feeling every imagination of an individual from the moment of conception to the moment of death and if it were possible to include in this record as well all the workings of his subconscious and superconscious minds if these exist then you would have something I would define as the individual spirit it is the sum of all that he non-physically is and more than that the sum of all the potentialities that are in him which the, limit, which the limitations of this life prevent him from fulfilling fortunately since it is the eternal part of him he has infinity and eternity in which to develop them so my definition of a spirit is all that an individual is or is capable of becoming in the context of eternity 
And what is eternity? Not just infinite time or space-time, though it may include those, but a different state brought about and held in existence by the thinking of God of whom I believe we are all individual thoughts. And the holistic implications of that I will leave to you to work out for yourselves if you want to. Now, Psi and its manifestations, however exciting they are, are only a comparatively small part of even an advanced psychic's experience. If one were to take somebody like Geraldine Cummins, who was um, a great and uh, very famous um, psychic communicator, you would find that the main part of her professional life was spent in helping bereaved people by convincing them of the survival of their loved ones and in producing automatic scripts of high quality. But one would find, of course, that this is only a very small part of Geraldine Cummins. Outside these principal activities, um, there would be personal relationships, thought other than psychic, imagination expressed in drama and fiction and so on, all manifestation of parts of the spirit of the lady that had nothing to do with her psychic faculties. Though they too were part of the manifestations of the spirit, which I believe she carried with her to the other side. Such faculties, it is true, sometimes resulted in specifically spiritual communications in the popular sense of the word spiritual, but the psychic gifts were not spiritual in themselves. So, Psi, if it exists, and some researchers deny its existence entirely, does so as one faculty of the whole human spirit, which comprises many faculties. Like other faculties, it exists in widely differing proportions, from materialists, who are of the earth earthy, to ultra-sensitives, who claim to be sometimes most uncomfortably aware of the bombardment of their lives by unseen influences. It's a faculty that can be improved by practice and training for those that have it, and not for those who don't, which may account for the fact that some ardent researchers obtain only negative results. A parallel is in the playing of a musical instrument, which has nothing to do with a love for or interest in music. I could not live without music, but I have what might be described as a dyslectic lack of coordination between my brain reading notes and my fingers playing them. And I spent 15 years trying to learn to play the piano before everyone realized what I realized very early on, that I was constitutionally unable to do so. Some have a faculty which remains dormant because they have no opportunity of learning. Of those who learn, most develop a moderate ability, yet others have the genius to become masters of their instrument. And it is the same, I think, with Sai. So Sai is not in itself more than a small aspect of spirit, in the sense in which I am using the word. But it is a step up from materialism, and possibly a bridge between the material and the spiritual. This is shown by the reported experience of contemplatives trying to attain spiritual enlightenment, however you define that goal. 
However you do define it, spiritual has a meaning other than what is meant by the spirit of man. It means the realm of things of the spirit, the infinite, the kingdom of God. People will define it differently according to their belief system. What seems to happen is that as the, the seekers after enlightenment progress, there is developed in some of them a kind of psychic ability, psychic gifts, which they can learn to control and by the exhibition of which they can sometimes dazzle devotees. I don't know whether you have heard of Sai Baba who is supposed to be able to materialize all sorts of things at the drop of a hat, but he is a very famous man who has inspired a great devotion among a, a large number of people by the paranormal phenomena which he produces. But there's a danger in such phenomena that they are so miraculous in themselves and give their propagators such authority that they tend not only to be corrupted by their psychic power which is just as corrupting as any other kind of power and perhaps more so than most but to get stuck or bypassed in their quest for the spiritual for this quest may need more dedication and self-denial than is comfortable and not only is it very pleasant to be adored but one's miracles besides adding to one's bank balance and fleet of Rolls Royces give authority to the spiritual platitudes that fall short of the new insights into truth that the seer might have produced if his development had continued. I'm not saying that this is what has happened to Sai Baba, I don't know much about the, the gentleman, but I am impressed by the fact that it is his miraculous powers that one constantly hears about, not any teaching that could redeem mankind. Even with the great spiritual leaders such as Jesus and Buddha, popular apologists tend to argue that the, valid the validity of their teaching is proved by the miraculous element in their lives. I said that Sai is a step up from materialism and have inferred that the spiritual is an advance beyond Sai. Assumptions I have no right to make without an attempt to justify them, especially since my title is What's the Matter with Spirit? which would be better expressed as Where is the Spirit in Matter? When I was preparing this lecture, I had vaguely in mind development of an idea put forward in another lecture I gave to the College of Psychic Studies and later published in a modified form in an article in the Christian Parapsychologist on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and quantum physics which was the lecture that Nigel thought I was going to give you this evening. This idea arose out of a gut feeling I have that there is a spiritual unity underlying the apparent diversity of the material universe which is occasionally glimpsed in the experiences of mystics. And this seemed to me to be confirmed by the findings of quantum physics that the whole of creation consists of particles which are in essence not material at all but pure energy. I pictured a spectrum which I put on the board there, in which on the left were the most solid materials we know, diamonds, crystals, granites, 
passing through softer solids to liquids to gases to atoms which are of course still material to particle uh, or um, to gases to molecules to atoms uh, to particles which are no longer material but pure energy and with unpatterned and paradoxical types of behavior quite unlike those of the world of atoms and material uh, and material uh, all material leftwards of atoms in the spectrum I put a double line there giving a sort of interface I suggested perhaps naively yet with the confidence that a simple explanation was to be chosen in preference to a more complicated one that there might be an interface in the spectrum by which everything from the atom leftwards could be regarded as material and the world of particles to the right as spirit and the ascription of intelligence made by some thinkers to light light is said by some people to be intelligent seemed to me to support this idea I've modified this view since in the sense of adding to it largely because of what I believe to be a very important book and a very difficult book The Quantum Self by a lady called Dana Zohar which is a, a nom de plume I think I have met her and she's actually a Mrs. Marshall in collaboration with her husband Ian Marshall the rest of my talk is based almost entirely on my understanding of this work and if I misrepresent the authors at all this will be due to flaws in my understanding for they are physicists and I have no education in that discipline beyond what I've tried to give myself in private study so I hope if there are any physicists in, in my audience that they'll forgive me if I drop any bricks I think the best way to picture the thought of Zohar for the purposes of this talk is chronologically according to quantum field theory the universe started with the Big Bang which brought into existence space, time and an eternally existing quantum vacuum this vacuum was not simply nothing but a field of fields of force a sea of potential it either was itself or gave rise to a kind of porridge of possibilities in which there seethed and bubbled the description is metaphorical uh, myriads of the energy entities which were to go to the making of matter the word energy entity is my own the usual word is particle but as a particle may be either a wave or a particle or both a separate word describing it in all its possibilities may avoid confusion so an EE behaves partly as a matter wave and partly uh, a probability wave and these waves if you like are smeared out all over space and time so that in the quantum view of things all things and all moments touch each other at every point and I'm reminded of Aristotle's definition of God as being a circle with no circumference whose center is everywhere but when observed this wave function is collapsed and the EE instead of being a wave and particle 
becomes a wave or particle behaving in only one of the myriad possibilities open to it. Now more than 90 EEs have been discovered or surmised by quantum physicists and they may be classified under two headings bosons and fermions at the bottom of the board there. Fermions which uh, are electrons, protons, neutrons and various other ons are EEs that combine to give us matter but they're antisocial to some extent they are non-overlapping individuals and they don't very much like each other so they tend to repel each other bosons which is the general name given to photons virtual photons and various others are EEs of relationship and they carry the forces that bind together the universe and force the rather unwilling fermions to uh, like each other and get together and bosons are essentially gregarious they can merge totally thus sharing identity and surrendering individuality and in merging they become something more and other than their sum the overlapping of millions of bosons behaving um, as one large boson makes possible the coherent ordering of quantum systems found in life and human consciousness as our consciousness and especially our self-consciousness is part of what I have included in our spirit there is at once a link between the matter and spirit of my talk bosons bind together the material world whose fundamental building blocks are fermions without bosons fermions would never get together and build anything without fermions bosons would have nothing to draw into relationship their wave functions may collapse whenever two bosons overlap and since this may be looked upon as the most primitive unit of consciousness it may be accurate to say that consciousness collapses the wave function this collapse is the most basic of nature's irreversible processes once it is done it is done forever and could be the most primary way in which bosons introduced a sense of direction into physics right from the very start of things a sense of direction allied to the physical world I am reminded of one of Thomas Aquinas's five proofs of the existence of God the teleological proof which argues that the evidence the evidences of design and purpose in nature suggest the existence of a grand ultimate design and thus an ultimate designer who is God from the very beginning of what later became the material world and the world of consciousness the building blocks of matter and consciousness had a mutually creative dialogue and the gradual evolution of consciousness is the driving force behind the unfolding of the universe if the overlapping of two bosons is the most primitive form of consciousness some rudimentary consciousness may be a property of all living systems for these from the amoeba to the human being are energized by myriads of photons which are bosons 
bunched together. The amoeba has a degree of consciousness very much less, of course, than uh, higher forms of life. But I think that what Dana Zora is saying is that all living systems obtain their consciousness in a similar way. And uh, she gives physical explanation as possible, uh, as, as, as follows. Uh, two little diagrams on either side of the bosons and fermions, those are what I'd like to direct your t attention to now. Now in the cell walls of living tissues, there exist what are known as dipole molecules, dip uh, that is, pairs of electric point charges or magnetic poles of equal magnitude and opposite signs separated by an infinitesimally small distance. If energy beyond a certain threshold is pumped into these, they, vi they vibrate in unison increasingly until they, built, they pull themselves into the most ordered form of condensed phase possible, all their poles pointing in the same direction as in the right-hand diagram. This is called a Bose-Einstein condensate in which the many parts not only behave as a whole, they become a whole, entirely losing their individuality. Zohar emphatically writes in italics, I think that the same Bose-Einstein Bo condensation among neuron constituents is what distinguishes the conscious from the non-conscious. I think it is the physical basis of consciousness. Neurons, for those of us not familiar with the terminology, are nerve cells with their processes, constituting the structural and functional units of nerve tissues. Any structure, biological or otherwise, containing a Bose-Einstein condensate might possess capacity for consciousness, though of what sort would depend on the system structure. But we may be employing more than a metaphor when we use such an expression as tunneling through the living rock. Notice that there's a jump here from one phase of existence to another. Why and how the jiggling of physical dipole molecules so that all their poles point in the same direction should produce consciousness, which belongs to the mental realm, bordering on what I have defined as spirit, is a question that Zohar doesn't answer. Just as is the process by which the pure energy of the particle, uh, or the pure energy of the particle world, becomes the material chairs, frying pans, and elephants of the universe of matter. I find these hiatuses in all human thought. This is the way certain things work, we discover triumphantly. But how and why this is the way they work remains unexplained. If we then manage to discover the why and how of the process under consideration, we merely move the explanation one step further back to be faced with another unexpounded why and how. Till, in the end, we are forced either into the faith of the materialist who says, Patience, we've got this far, further knowledge will one day explain everything, or that of the religionist who says, There is an ultimate mystery in the universe whose depths we shall never plumb, at least in this life. We are indeed 
dealing with present mysteries, let alone the ultimate. If I may quote from my above-mentioned article, particles can apparently be in two places at the same time, in other words, by location. They can move backwards in time, retrogression. They can pass through two holes in a metal plate constantaneously without dividing. They can move from one orbit to another without crossing the space in between and perform another, a number of other tricks which mind cannot conceive nor language embody. No particle is anywhere and no physicist will ever see or touch one for particles do not exist as objects exist. When we can understand and measure the ripple in water when there is no water or the flap in a non-existent flag for it is possible to have a wave in a vacuum when there is nothing waving furthermore when the ripple and the flap and the wave are not any of these but points of light which never stand still if we can understand all that which I can't well we may be able to think of ourselves as beginning to understand particles all we can say is that the primordial stuff of the universe appears to be wave particles or quanta which are small energy units of light which have no reality in terms of classical physics since they are all simultaneously and impossibly both waves and particles and ladies and gentlemen there is nothing except these particles which make up you there is in fact no ultimate physical substance to matter which has been described as gravitationally trapped light so I suggest that there may be a hint here of an ultimate unity of the physical and the spiritual our eventual entry into the world of spirit and the presence of God could be by the refinement of our physical beings into energy units of light illumined still further by the intelligence of the self-consciousness we shall have developed in our lives or series of lives. One further thought from Dara Zohar's book. One of the fields within the quantum vacuum which is the substratum of all there is and which was brought into existence by the Big Bang is thought to be one of her coherent Bose-Einstein condensates that is something with the same physics as the ground state of human consciousness that vacuum itself may be conscious and I as a Christian theologian who believe in a God both transcendent and imminent can from this datum work out a conception of deity at work in his creation from the Big Bang onwards who is to revert to my idea of the thinker thinking thoughts the thought of transcendent God outside the universe and before the Big Bang thinking of himself as the eminent creator of the universe within it I can see no reason why an imminent God should not be the incarnation as it were of a, of a transcendent deity which may be a suggested answer to one of the other great problems which philosophy and theology have to face well I know that this has been a very difficult lecture in many ways 
I hope it hasn't bored you. I hope you've managed to understand something of what I'm trying to get across, which I think is original to some extent, and that it may help to throw light on problems which I know certainly puzzled me when I was at school, the nature of the Trinity and so on, and uh, if I can answer any questions or enlighten you or uh, disabuse you of, of uh, lack of enlightenment in any way, I'm at your service. Thank you very much. Yes, I, it could very well be an explanation because, of course, anything which appears to us to be solid is in actual fact looked at from the particle point of view is full of empty space. As you probably know, some of these particles can shoot right through the earth without touching anything. We are all of us simply clouds of particles and it would be perfectly possible, if we knew how, I think, for us to pass through solid matter if we could so arrange our particles as we travel, we, our particles could find the space, <laughs> spaces in the particles of that door and go right through it and reunite on the other side, if we knew the trick. You're talking about of the body experiences in which, shall we say, uh, you can leave your body and visit the Taj Mahal boom by moonlight and come back again. Well, I don't know what the trick of that is, I'm afraid. Um, uh, there are, of course, plenty of books in which people claim to be able to do this. Um, I've never managed the trick myself, but <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how it would be done, if it can be done. But, um, yes, as I suppose it is possible that one's astral body, spiritual body, whatever you like to call it, can, as it were, um, leave, leave our bodies but I, I don't know whether there is any relation between that and what I've been trying to say. What is my justification? My justification is, if you like, uh, the, the, the writing of Dana Zohar, which I found very impressive, as far as it goes. I mean, what she is really saying is that consciousness is explained by this jiggling about of, of, of dipoles and so on, and that this is what causes consciousness. As I have said, that's only, uh, I still want to know how it is that what I would think of as a spiritual concept like consciousness can be produced by a purely physical jiggling of dipoles. But in so, uh, I, I have said I am not a physicist myself and I don't know anything about it apart from what I've tried to educate myself in. But I was impressed the entire book, of which I've only quoted a very small part, because from that she developed a whole range of theories of the way human relationships, relationships work and possible survival of death and so on. If you want a really hard but stimulating read, I can recommend The Quantum Self by Dana Zohar. And no, not predestination because, not predestination in, a, in any mechanical way, because if you get just two bosons, as it were, coinciding with each other, they have all sorts of possibilities. They can shoot out in that direction, that direction, that direction, that direction, as it were. They can, they can go anywhere and do anything. As I understand the behavior of particles when 
a physicist is trying to study them the very fact that a physicist as it were studies uh, the behavior of particle will determine the behavior of that particle yes and therefore the particle is then settled in a certain direction and that is as it were irreversible but there are infinite permutations and combinations of the way I mean there are millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of particles all of which can behave in all sorts of different ways and there is therefore a constant flux now whether predestination exists or not is um, a moot question I think the general direction of the universe is predestined I mean I, I, I think that well as, as a Christian I believe of course that God exists and I believe that he has a plan uh, as it were uh, for our individual lives and that he has a plan for the universe and where it's going and all that but I think God is probably in a position of having constantly to adjust the choices which we make with our limited free will or not uh, and so on uh, he is constantly having this is a very mechanical and anthropomorphic way of looking at it he's constantly having to adjust somebody makes a wrong choice there and goes in that direction whereas God wants him to go in that direction in order that the whole creation may move in that direction and therefore is you've gone wrong there how can that be corrected so as so that the ultimate target may be may be hit how would I explain God? I define God personally and I think it's important that, that we have some sort of idea of what we mean by the term God I defer to define God personally though of course God cannot be confined in a definition so I must make that caveat but I define him personally as that being than whom none can be greater in quality or can be imagined to be greater I say in quality because what is important about quality is the fact that for example you have in your mind uh, you, you have in, in your skull a brain weighing what, two and a half pounds or I don't, I don't know what it is biologists will be able to tell me but that brain which is a lump of grey matter weighing just a pound or two it nevertheless can think in terms of what we've been talking about today can conceive of galaxies exploding from each other uh, across millions of light years at unimaginable speeds this brain can conceive of the behavior of infinitely small creatures and so on um, in other words what makes you important as a man is the fact that you have this brain which can embrace all this and therefore I conceive of, of of God as being unimaginably great in quality not an enormous man as it were but a, a being with an enormous quality of thought etc etc within him which is an anthropomorphic description it goes much further than that but uh, this is the sort of idea I have in my mind when I'm thinking about God he is that kind of entity omnipresent well again I think 
I think possibly um, quantum physics can, uh, can, can in a sense throw light upon that because according to some quantum physics theory every single particle in the universe affects every other single particle so that if a particular particle moves in that direction down here some other particle on the other side of the farthest galaxy moves in that direction to balance it and um, if particles can be omnipresent in their influence in, 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 in that way I don't really see any difficulty why, <laughs> uh, why, why God shouldn't be omnipresent but of course if you say that I'm talking uh, I, I'm talking simply stuff which is not understandable I grant you um, the trouble with, with uh, quantum physics is it cannot be described in ordinary human language nor embraced by hu ordinary human thought which is after all what any theologian would say about God yes I would um, accept that that is a viable point of view I would simply say that I as a man of faith in the sense of a man who has um, a theory based on a religious outlook of life I simply hold another point of view I think it's very important that when you do hold a point of view you accept the existence of opposing points of view and you, uh, you accept their possibility I think what one has to be very careful of is never to be dogmatic to be firm in one's own belief system until that belief system is proved to be is, is definitely proved to your satisfaction to be wrong I'm always very unhappy about a certain type of shall we say fundamentalist Christian who is absolutely convinced that he must believe a certain body of belief and is absolutely close to anything else now such people are often very unhappy because shall we say they believe that they must believe in the seven days of creation but they know in their heart of hearts that Darwin's theory of evolution or the theories of evolution that have developed out of Darwin are really right but they say no 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 it can't be right I must because I can only be saved shall we say if I believe this uh, if I believe the King James version of the Bible and they're therefore divided between themselves and they are very unhappy about it often now I believe myself that one should recognize the fact that we have been conditioned to believe certain things I am a Christian because I have lived I've been brought up in a Christian society I have been conditioned by Christian people and so on but nevertheless although I can recognize this I also do accept that I have thought about it sufficiently and tried to work out my position and so on to believe that for me at any rate that position is a viable one and a valid one I do recognize on the other hand that Buddhists, Hindus and so on who have been brought up in other traditions will find their traditions viable when it comes to philosophers who are agnostic or atheist then again they hold a viable position but it's, but I, I find that when I balance argument against argument that the arguments for my position are as strong as the arguments for other positions and that therefore I see no reason 
to change my position until I am presented with overwhelming arguments to the, to the, to the opposite. Oh, I would, I would accept that entirely, the fact that we are nothing but particles, and I have also said that particles uh, are, are, may be conscious, and that the, uh, what makes us conscious of the love of God, shall we say, um, may arise out of the consciousness of all the particles that are going to make us up. I don't see there's any difficulty there. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we, we are surely always changing in a sense. Yes, I know, um, in my uh, 77 years of life, I'm supposed to have gone through about 70 bodies, I think, all entirely different. Um, yet, on the other hand, when I was a small boy, I cut myself on a piece of glass there, and I have a scar. Now, that scar is still there, although... Well, what I'm really talking... What, what, what I believe is that there is um, an, an inner me, which a fundamental me, which never changes. I think it's independent of my physical form to some extent. I mean, this is of course one of the, one of the great arguments, isn't it, uh, or one of the great discussion points of the relationship of the spiritual to the physical. What I am trying to do, what I've been trying to do here, is to suggest that at base, <laughs> everything that we regard as physical is, when you come right down to the world of particles, is actually spiritual. There is a unity. Um, May I say that in what I put before, these, these are just, uh, as it were, theories, and I hope, uh, theories which will perhaps stimulate you. Uh, I hope I've just given you a few ideas. Um, I would hate to be dogmatic. I, I wouldn't go, as it were, preaching that this is the way people must believe. So, yeah, so <laughs> I will try to do so. Collapse of the wave function. Um, Schrodinger's cat. No, I won't go into that. <laughs> the idea, I think, of the of the the wave function is, if you like, the behaviour of a particle in its normal state. It is travelling along in in a wave, and it may travel in any direction, up, down, and all the rest of it. When an observer comes along and tries to see what happens to it, he, as it were by observing it he has a certain influence on it and he causes it to stop its wave function and to settle in one position. Once it has settled in that position it ceases to have all these, other, all these possibilities. By his observation of it he has fixed it so that from then on it is limited in the things that it can do. He has fixed that, and since he has fixed that, and since his fixing of it is irreversible, ir irrevocable, he has collapsed the wave function into a, into a set pattern. This is what I understand by it. Any physicist here? Right. Well, the, that is... The, um, that is, well, one thing which isn't necessarily relevant to the 
Bose-Einstein condensate. The Bose-Einstein condensate says this, if I understand it. It says that you have this state of flux in which fermions are holding each other apart. Bosons are trying hard to get together. So you have a balance. Uh, when you had this vacuum at the beginning, after the Big Bang, you had <laughs> hundreds of millions of bosons, hundreds of millions of fermions, all with, as it were, nowhere definite to go, but with an infinite number of, of, of possibilities, because they could all unite, repel, and all the rest of it in a myriad, myriad, myriad number of, of patterns and so on. What seems to have happened according to um, this theory is that out of all those myriad possibilities you get a couple of, of bosons getting together uh, forming this condensate and therefore being, shall we say, powerful enough, strong enough to, to settle one tiny direction in the whole field and perhaps seizing upon a couple of fermions, binding them together and forming something. And that this was the way, by this happening a million, million times over, was the way in which matter was formed. These things getting together, uh, becoming uh, atoms, becoming molecules, forming matter, forming the entire universe. The galaxies, the stars and everything else. This is, if I am correct, this is, I think, what this business means. How does that relate to the, to the dipole? Well, the yes, well this is where, according to Dana Zohar again, consciousness came into existence. She maintains that if you have, shall we say, you have matter being formed out of the first, the first sort of porridge of possibilities, the, the matter was, as it were, chaotic in the sense of these uh, dipoles, which are individual uh, molecules, as it were, pointing in all sorts, just a sort of chaotic mess. Physical matter. Yes, physical matter. Then, energy. Of course, the, the universe is full of energy of all kinds. Energy got to work on these, jiggled them around, and it's rather like taking a magnet and putting it on, on, on iron filings. Um, the iron filings don't instantly go into the pattern of waves. You have to shake the thing about a bit and gradually the pattern will, will, will come up. So the energy affecting these particles of matter with the dipoles pointing in all sorts of different directions jiggled them around until they all pointed in the same direction and, and, and Zohar says that when you get a neuron, a piece of material if you like, um, with all the dipoles pointing in the same direction, then you get consciousness. Now, as I said, why you get consciousness when this happens I don't know and she doesn't explain. And there is, of course, always a, a hiatus between mind and matter on the way the one, as it were, becomes the other. But it is, if you like, an explanation of the way that consciousness um, arises out of a, an arrangement of matter. 
Now, I can go no further than that. I don't fully understand it. I'm glad you don't too. But um, I don't know whether this helps to answer your question at all. But the trouble with quantum physics is, of course, you're talking about things which are impossible. Oh yes, I do, I do agree. Please don't misunderstand me. What I was saying there was that a lot of people say, Jesus did miracles, therefore he was God. I would, say, I would say the right approach is that Jesus was God with all the compassion of God and so on and therefore did miracles. Well, there may have been, but the point is that they weren't reported. Jesus was. Oh yes. Well, there have always, there have always been miracle workers, thermoturgies and so on. And of course, uh, the importance of Jesus is not that he, uh, that, that he wrought miracles, but he, he is important for what he was as a person, or what he is as a person. Now, what, what, I, what I was trying to say then is that there are, uh, there's a certain type of mind which will worship somebody because he does wonderful things. And the wonderful things are not important. The only reason one should, for the only valid reason for worshipping somebody, or respecting somebody, or venerating somebody, is for what he is, not for what he does. Of course, what he does is an expression of what he is. But nevertheless, I do not believe, uh, I do not accept Jesus as the being I worship now because he healed the sick and so on. Yes, that, 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 is, that again is all part of it. I mean, this is, he went to the cross because of who he was or who he is, not, not because, shall we say, of an accident of history. I'm sorry, I don't think we are really contradicting. I, I think you may have misunderstood something of what I was trying to say. Are you happy about that? No, I don't think I, uh, if you're talking the prophecies of Isaiah, of course, um, anybody who has studied the Old Testament uh, in, in a, as a theologian, shall we say, knows perfectly well that celebrated pictures which um, Isaiah drew of the suffering servant and so on would seem a literal, a literal description of uh, Christ's sufferings uh, were not intended to be that at all. If you study the prophets, the prophets prophesied out of conditions arising from their own times but in many cases they prophesied of course truer than they knew by taking something which happened in their own time they quite by chance I think but nevertheless uh, perhaps by the design of God also foresaw something which was to come when when Isaiah had the concept of the suffering servant, that is to say, I don't know, do you know that concept? Uh, well, when he had the, the idea that Israel was suffering the punishment of God for the, not for their own sins, which had already been paid for but for, the, for, but for the sins of others, he was really foreseeing what I would describe as a manifestation of the Christ spirit in which Christ himself suffered for the sins of others as we believe. I think it's a little unwise in a sense to talk of the Christ spirit and the Christ consciousness and so on as if 
Christ and his spirit uh, or Christ and his consciousness were divorced um, uh, how can I put it I, Christ's spirit may be present in other people but it is derived from Christ and without him could not exist which does not mean to say that I belittle in any way the great spiritual leaders of other uh, uh, religions I'm, I'm a, I have an extreme veneration for Buddha for example and um, um, some of the uh, Hindu thought is extremely Christ-like if you like so I would never belittle the revelations that have been made through, through um, other great religious leaders but I do believe that Christ is unique in the sense that the other religious leaders are not as I've defined him I think that Christ was God's thought of himself in human form except of course in the very difficult question which I think is almost unanswerable the relationship of the human and divine within the personality of Christ um, let, me, let, let me narrow my definition and say perhaps that, uh, that uh, Jesus and Christ were God's thought of himself uh, as a first century Jewish <laughs> living in Palestine but of course the relationship of the historical Christ with the Christ whom I worship the uh, relationship of the historical Jesus perhaps with the Christ whom I worship is the fact that it is a two way traffic in a sense I have a unique vision of Christ because I am me and nobody else is me and therefore I see in Christ an answer to my particular need as a human being which is different from everybody else's need because everybody else is different from me so my Christ must inevitably different from, be different from anybody else's Christ I think but if I want to know what God is like then I bring to Jesus as he was revealed in his life and, and um, uh, death and resurrection and so on I bring to that conception something in me which answers to that it is a relationship between him and me it's a personal relationship and uh, that is what I think is important and what, what makes Jesus of Nazareth Christ for me no I see, I see God as being outside matter as I said in the, in the conclusion of my talk I think God as bound up in matter that is to say the immanent God is God's thought of himself in matter <laughs> in other words uh, I must believe both that God is is completely indwelling in his creation but if I stuck there I should be a pantheist which I am not but I believe that God is spirit and that spirit is as well as being within matter is also outside it so is the same truth for you and me do we have an aspect which is in matter and an aspect which is outside 
we may very well have and it is of course possibly the escape of that which is outside it to um, to a permanent uh, situation outside it and a union which will make for the union of, of God with God which Paul speaks of for example when he says now I see in a glass darkly then face to face uh, then I shall know even as I am known and I believe that the ultimate destiny of mankind is to is to understand God as he understands us